Good morning. We are excited to be here online. So glad you are with us. If you're new, my name is Pat Lassard. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I get to team preach with one of my friends and co-laborers. If he's a new face for you, this is Ben Baker. He is our counseling pastor here, and uh, and a woo from the back. Um, if that's intriguing to you for some things maybe going on in your life, I do want to encourage you to take advantage of, of him as a resource as well as his ministry here at the church, and he can fill you in the details, but start a conversation with him. His email address is at the bottom uh, of the sermon notes, or if you're not a note taker, bbaker at northshorechristian.org like any of the rest of ours. So with that, we are continuing our series of the life of David, a passionate pursuit of God. We're building off specifically over the last couple weeks of Tyler's message and Damien's message of the cross paths of David and Saul. And so we're going to continue in that as we look specifically in 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we're going to be today. If you need a Bible, our usher is going to come forward in a moment raise your hand. We'll be glad to hook you up with one. And we are going to story. We're going to story the story. I'm going to hand it over to my brother Ben to take us there. It probably was, probably was me. Start over. Start over. Okay. I said thank you to Pat for allowing me to come yes, and do this again. Good. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> no, I, it was, I think it was about a year ago that uh, Pat asked me to team teach with him. And uh, I really appreciate that he trusted me enough after a year of, you know, pondering it and thinking about it to allow me to back up here beside you again uh, to, to team teach. Um, I, this is, I, I really consider this, one thing you'll get to know about me when I'm passionate, I start to cry. Um, this, this is holy ground in my opinion to be the mouthpiece is probably the best way to say it for God, uh, from his word. And so I take this very, very seriously. And uh, I'm honored to be here. Thank you that you showed up on this snowy, cold day (laughs) uh, to be here uh, and to be in the presence of God. And I just pray that you would know God's presence today in new and unusual ways. But as Pat said, we're going to story the story let me give you some background to what that means. So there's different types of literature through, throughout Scripture. There's didactic, and that's most of the epistles and New Testament. And then there's narrative, which is most of what the Gospels are, telling the story of Jesus' life and his eventual death and resurrection. And then the same is true in the Old Testament. You have other types of literature. The literature that we've been looking at through David is called narrative literature. It's telling the story of David's rise, God's hand on David's life. And so how was that passed on if it was narrative from generation to generation? 
Well, clearly it was recorded. We believe that traditionally that Samuel and Nathan are the ones that recorded First uh, and Second Samuel. But uh, how was that outside of being at the temple where the scrolls may have been kept and, and rewritten over and over in order to preserve God's word? How was that communicated except by oral process within family? So I want you to imagine yourself sitting in the home of an Israelite where the patriarch begins to pass on the story of David in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel to his family as he passes it on, because that's the way it would have been communicated to them. So I won't be reading from the text, maybe to reference it, and I encourage you, and and Pat won't be either, I encourage you to keep the text open, make sure that we're following the text. So uh, let's, let's kind of begin. As you know, the context of this, of this passage is after the slaying of Goliath. And Saul is, uh, looks like meeting David here and doesn't know who he is and finds out that he is the son of Jesse uh, from, uh, I think, I believe, Bethlehem. And it begins here that after David started, was done speaking with Saul, that he runs into Jonathan. I would imagine Jonathan's probably in that space that, you know, where he's talking with Saul and, and Saul's getting to know who David is. I don't think it's something that he left Saul's tent or wherever he was at and ran into Jonathan on the way. Because Jonathan is the son of Saul, Jonathan probably is in that space and is getting to, to know uh, David just as much as Saul is. But we're told that Jonathan met David, and the text actually says they were one in spirit, one in spirit with David, one in spirit. There was, a, there was something that happened in that connection, in that time. There was something exchanged between the two of them in that moment to where Jonathan bound his spirit and David bound his spirit to one another in that moment. And then the text then says, and Jonathan loved David as himself. In fact, it says that twice. Later on, you have another statement. Jonathan loved him as himself. Anytime you come across scripture where it's saying saying things twice, especially when in a three-verse span, that's really important to recognize. What's going on there? What's happening there? I'm going to come back to that. The next thing that happens, we're told, is that Saul decides to keep David in his presence there, to keep him with him. He doesn't allow him to return home to to guarding the sheep. So his job, uh, his career as a shepherd appears to have come to an end, probably finally to David's pleasure. Have you ever been around sheep? They're kind of smelly and dirty. (laughs) So, but they, that's what Saul decides to do. And then we have this Another statement right afterward where it says, and, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And we're, we're given this description that Jonathan takes off his tunic or his robe and he gives it to David, takes off his belt and his sword and his bow and gives all these items to David. That is incredibly significant. Do you recognize who Jonathan is? 
Jonathan is the prince of Israel. He is the natural heir to the throne of Israel if Saul were to die, be killed in battle. And by doing these things, he's saying, I'm abdicating that role to you. Something significant happened there. One of the things I think of is that Jonathan saw what David did with Goliath and slaying him. Saw that that God's hand, God's blessing, God's spirit was on David. And so he's in there and he gets this opportunity to have this conversation with, with David. And he gets to know David more. And through that conversation, he discovers and realizes that God's spirit is on David and God is choosing to move through David. Think about that. The outcome of it. Imagine it. My, uh, my professor uh, in seminary, his name is Dr. Green. I went to Moody Graduate School for my s- seminary degree. Uh, he used to use a phrase called sanctified imagination. So what I'm about to say is not found in the text. <laughs> So, but I hopefully it is, it is sanctified because you want to use some common sense when you read, read a text and you have to kind of think about what, what transpired in that conversation. What happened in that conversation between Jonathan? Because the results indicate that there was something significant occurring between Jonathan and David. We can't deny that. How do you in a moment decide, I love him as myself? How do you in a, in a moment have your spirit united? There has to be some exchange there going on that helps Jonathan seek to align himself in this way. And then he makes a covenant. Notice that, a covenant. All of this indicates that something happened there. I cannot help believe that as Jonathan was watching and saw God's spirit and had conversation with, with, with David, recognizing things that God has said about David, that he is a man after my own heart, seeing that his, he had a humble spirit, a faithful spirit, that all he wanted to do, all that he cared about was following God's plan in his life. And Jonathan sees that. I can't help but think as well that, that David shared with Jonathan that Samuel had been out to anoint him as the next king. And all these things confirmed themselves in Jonathan's heart. And so he chooses to say and recognize, you're God's man. You're God's man. And I want to align myself with God. So I'm going to align myself with you and enter into covenant with you. The next account here given to us is, I I kind of considered a summary of David's continued success here. David's, the evidence of God's hand on David's life. We're told there that, that whatever he did, whatever mission Saul sent him on, he was successful in that that it was accomplished and accomplished well. And he was coming back. And because of that success and that blessing, Saul was able to recognize, I need to put him in charge. 
I need to give him, make him a commander, a high, give him a high rank. Not sure what rank. It doesn't actually tell us. The text doesn't communicate to us whether he's, you know, a general or something below, a colonel or, or whatever. They may not have had ranks in those terms at that point. Probably didn't. didn't. But notice this, that the troops and the officers were pleased with that decision. Now, I've never served as a soldier, but I certainly want to make sure that, I'm, that my leader I'm following is one I can trust and one that God is leading as well. I believe that summary statement is put there because the narrator, the text, wants us to know that the troops and the officers recognize the spirit of God and they as well like Jonathan, aligned themselves, were pleased with what they were seeing in David. Now, things make a bit of a shift here in the account. They are on their way home, it's in my imagination. They, they are marching back to home after they've been down in the valley where Goliath was slain, and they're headed, they're headed back as the indication here, I believe. You know, marching in town, a very common practice is when the victorious army is coming back home, that the, the people come out to cheer them on for their victory because their victory has preserved their lives and their way of life as well. And that as they're returning, we're told that all the women from all the towns were coming out with tambourines and, and lyres, and they were singing out you know, all kinds of great things and dancing before the soldiers as they marched down with probably Saul and David and Jonathan in the front as they were leading, leading them all in. Their, their heroes having been victorious, marching forward. And there was one specific phrase that was shouted. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, that's, that's a pretty significant statement. And because of that statement, Saul is a little angered by it. And that's probably just a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> that's pro probably a lot more than that based on it. And we're given a little bit of insight. I take this, this, this statement by Saul as being something he's thinking to himself. It could be something that he said to others around him, but I tend to doubt that right now because everyone else is pleased with David. So I feel like we're getting an insight into the mind and thoughts of Saul. And I'm going to read what Saul says. They have credit, credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Now notice the difference here. I just want to pause here between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan sees the hand of God, the presence of God's spirit on David, and he aligns himself with David. He enters into a covenant. He does the ceremoniously thing where he gives him his robe, he gives him you know, his sword, his bow, he gives him his belt, all those things that are, that are symbols of royalty. And then Saul, when he hears this, he, be, he gets enraged, he gets jealous, he gets envious of David because David's being honored over him and he's the king of Israel. He has been seen as the great first king of Israel and suddenly 
he feels less. And it becomes about David and Saul, about personalities, about who they are rather than about God. And we begin to see Saul's heart because it is not humble, because his eyes are on himself. He begins to be protective. What else would he, can he get but the kingdom? He's going to lose his throne. So now it becomes a case of trying to guard and protect his throne, protect what he has. Rather than recognize everything he has, God gave him. And then we're told from that point forward, Saul kept his eye on David, a suspicious eye, I believe. The story continues, and Saul increases in fear of David. He continues to just be afraid more and more and more as it goes. And it was evident God was with David and was not with Saul anymore. He had departed from him. Saul, uh, out of this situation, he removes David from his presence from the royal courts and serving in that capacity, and he has him just out in the field with his soldiers as a, as a commander of sorts over a section of his army. And he just continues to increase. He continues to be successful in all of his missions and everything that he's doing. Now, Saul uh, sees this threat, and he sees an opportunity to be able to secure a little bit of control in his insecurities by utilizing his oldest daughter. So if he can make David his son-in-law, he has more control over him. So uh, he uses Merib as as this kind of chess piece. Well, at the last minute, Saul ends up giving his daughter away to another man. Now, side note on that, most likely this guy, Adriel is his name, he had something to offer Saul. He was from a wealthy family, whereas David was from a poor family. Uh, Adriel probably offered him a hefty dowry, and that was intriguing to Saul's flesh. Whereas David, David offered irritation and jealousy. That's not a, little, that's not a strong deal. Okay. Well, at this time, so he gives his daughter away. Saul has another daughter, uh, McCall, and uh, she falls in love with David at this time. And Saul sees there's another opportunity to be able to have him be my son-in-law. I have more control over him and his life. And so this is a win-win. But I'm going to make a deal with David. So he makes a deal with David. And he says, if you go and get 100 Philistine uncircumcised man parts, you bring those back to me. Yes, you heard me right. You bring those back to me, I'll give you my daughter. Well, he is so successful in this. Now, Saul also had an agenda of, hands down, David is gonna get killed in this process. You go over a hundred man parts. You try and steal other people's man parts, you're gonna die in this process. It's gonna be a win-win, okay? David is so successful, he gets 200. He comes back, Saul, out of defeat, gives his daughter McCall to him, and he just continues to be successful in everything that he's doing. He is more successful than any other officer, any other commander uh, or servant under Saul, and uh, David's 
David's success continues to grow. It's evident God is with him. And uh, Saul's fear, at, at the end of this chapter, you see Saul's fear just continue to just tank and get worse. And David's esteem and success increase. Okay? Which, that's, the, that's our first point here, scene one. Saul's jealousy and David's fame both grow. Our intent in this message is, the title of this message is Recognizing Where God is Blessing. And so you're going to see, if you haven't already heard, this theme of recognizing where God is blessing and then moving towards that. That's what we would want for us, that we would draw from this. Now, uh, just a a brief piece before we continue on with this scene one is um, uh, something about the Philistines, a little history about the Philistines. Perhaps maybe you've had a question like I have uh, regarding how do the Philistines never go away? They just like keep circling back like David and Goliath. They're defeated, they're chased down, and then they're back again, right? How does that keep happening? So a couple really important things to keep in view. When Israel came into the promised land, they were to trust in God to be battling their battles for them, and he promised he would provide them success in uh, securing the land. Well, the Philistines were in that land, and the Israelites were not faithful. They were not fully obedient to God. Therefore, they continued to suffer consequences years later. Note to self. When we are not fully obedient to God, do not be surprised when you still suffer consequences years down the road. Know what I mean? One person knows what I mean. (laughs) So Israel, there you go, you're with me. Israel continues to be a thorn, sorry, The Philistines continue to be a thorn in Israel's side for close to 200 years, over and over and over again. You see seven major battles take place between Israel and the Philistines, and they get defeated, and then they come back. They get defeated and come back. Uh, One more piece before we continue on here is it's helpful to know there's five major cities of the Philistines, and each of them had a king over the city a king, a lord. So it wasn't just like one people, one king, defeated, they're gone. There's more and more and more of them that take place in this story. So with that, let's continue on with our scene one as we go through chapter 18, verse one through nine, okay? Saul's jealousy and David's fame both grow. Now, we're gonna take a hard left here, We're going to take a humongous rabbit trail here because of these first few verses. You can go ahead and put these up on the screen. Uh, 18, 1, and 3. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Okay? We're going to take a hard left here, not because the text of what the text does itself, but because what our culture has done with this passage, we both, Ben and I both felt strongly that we would speak to this, that we would take this opportunity to lead and guide our church in this passage, okay? This is a, uh, a key definitive text for our gay community in support, if you're not familiar with it, uh, in support of uh, homosexual lifestyles being approved by God and this relationship because of some of the nature of this language here. And so we wanna talk through that, okay? 
Um, it's a little long. We just ask you to hang with us, okay? Don't walk out the door before you've, you know, finished the thing, okay? Um, and if you're new with us, if this is your first time here, we want you to know we don't have this agenda to chase down every hot topic that comes up, you know, just for the record. But as it comes up, we want to be faithful with the text and, and what we do here, okay? Everybody with me? Cool. So here we go. So as you saw, there's a lot of language here that talks about real close, um, real close relationship. Uh, it's, it's interpreted as soul tie, that there's physical intimacy going on between this covenant and being made one, like a man and a woman. They are both married to women, for the record. Okay, they, they end up being married, David, right, soon in that chapter. Um, and so that's, that's established there, but there's still this piece. Now we have... Uh, two kind of choices here in this matter. Um, you have, how you read this, you have your own thoughts and feelings and opinions that you can read into the Bible and you can interpret it in a way that it supports what you think, what you feel, what you believe, okay? And you are uh, supreme in authority over the Bible. Or the Bible can be supreme in authority over you and you are submissive and subjective to it and it changes you versus you change it. Now, every single one of us interpret the Bible. We read it and we interpret through our perception certain things of this is what it means and this is uh, what it doesn't mean. We want to give you a tool, Okay. Um, but I want to lead you to one more verse that is tied to this that's really significant. And it's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. This is about Jonathan when he dies in battle. David uh, speaks grieving about this close relationship. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now you take that, that's a tough text, okay? You take that, that's a tough text. And you take the other passage and that's a tough text. What do you do? How do you interpret these? What is God wanting to say? What was he saying to the original audience? How do we process this? So we wanna give you a tool. One of them is this, is the word over you and it changes you or you over the word and you change it. That's an important distinction, okay? Um, but the tool is this. The best biblical interpretation tool is to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. There's a lot of tools when it comes to hermeneutics, but to use the Bible to interpret the Bible, what does God say in the holistic word about a subject to help inform us with what God thinks, feels, believes about a certain thing versus just taking a verse and making it fit within what I think and what I understand, okay? So that's what we're gonna do here, right here, right now, with, especially with those two passages. That word love is used four different times in, in both of these passages, okay? The Hebrew word ahaba is this, simply means to love, okay? So depending on the context, it really makes a big difference, okay? This word is used 26 times in the Old Testament, never once in a physically intimate sexual way, as in they made love of sorts, 
okay? I'm gonna give you a couple different examples. Proverbs 15, 17 says this, better is a dish of vegetables where love is, same word, than a fattened ox served with hatred. There's no physical intimacy taking place around vegetables, right? Um, there, there's connection, there's love, there's community, there's support, there's commitment, right, to one another. God uses the same word about himself in relationship to Israel here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying about the people of God, I have loved you with an everlasting love, same word, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Okay? Now going back to this uh, 1 Samuel 18 passage, as well as 16, the same word is used regarding Saul loves David. McCall, Saul's daughter, loves David. Jonathan loves David. The servants of Saul love David. All of Israel and Judah love David. Same word. We've already just now just talked about 10 of those 26 times that word's used, okay? So you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Let's keep going though. Uh, In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God establishes some really important truths. He makes man, male, and female in his image, in his likeness. He creates two genders. Now he establishes a unique specific covenant among the male and female called marriage, with Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's not a joke. I'm being honest, and I think we need to be tactful in how we talk about this. Next, okay, so we're using the whole Bible here. Next, when God comes down, God comes down, God God comes near, and he walks the earth, he does a number of things, but he clarifies things. He clarifies for the people who God is, what God believes, what really matters. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. You tracking with me? In Matthew 19, Jesus does something super important. He refers back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he does not remodel gender nor marriage, he does not remodel it to what the latest and greatest um, thing is, which homosexuality, that's existed forever. So he did not remodel it, but rather he reaffirmed God's true design, man and a woman, and that's the context of marriage. Okay, everybody tracking with me? Use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's the best tool, our best go-to. That was me teaching, now I'm going to preach at you, okay? This is really important. Oh, I have one more verse here. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, this is a famous one. This is a, this is a big one. Um, it's really clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 10, this is under the new covenant, right? Paid in full by Jesus' blood. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So let's keep going. The next verse says this. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? 
and such were some of you. Homosexuality, just for clarity, if you haven't picked it up uh, so far of what we believe here at North Shore Christian Church and what we teach, homosexuality is not God's design. Everyone needs Jesus, though. Everyone needs Jesus. I have family and friends who are gay. And I love them. Love them. I'm in relationship with them. And some of you do too. That's really important. How we dialogue and walk through this together. Okay? The ultimate goal of Jesus is not for everyone to be heterosexual. That's not the ultimate goal. That is not the ultimate desire. Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness is the ultimate goal of Jesus. We need to keep that straight. That pun was not intended, but I'll play with it, okay? (laughs) Heterosexual sin is equivalent. If you're a boyfriend and girlfriend, you're sleeping with each other, you're engaged and you're like committed enough because you're going to get married, that's as well sin. Pornography usage, that is equivalent But we don't think that way a lot. Regarding temptation, same-sex attraction is a real temptation for some of us. And I use that graciously, for some of us. Think about the temptation that you face, how long you've faced it, battling it out. That same thing is true for some regarding same-sex attraction. When we talk about a specific sin, especially like a hot topic like this, there's two ways for us to fall. We can fall on the legalism side or we can fall on the lawlessness side. You can fall on the legalism side of saying it's all truth. Yeah, say it. You're finally saying it, right? Talk about those people. And we minimize our sin. We maximize their sin. Or we fall on the lawless side where there's no truth. It's all grace. It's all subjective, right? And I get to determine what's okay and what's not okay, and I'm God. I'm God over God, okay? Jesus did grace and truth, John 1. Jesus is grace and truth. We have to be both grace and truth. We have to walk that out well as a church. Gay people are welcome here. Gay people are welcome here. As well as prideful Selfish, greedy, angry, right? People are welcome here. Gay people are welcome here. And regarding those, um, pride, greed, selfishness, and anger are far more destructive in my estimation. How many marriages and families and divorces have been destroyed because of greed, pride, selfishness, and anger? How many compared to homosexuality? This is super sad. Uh, Even the earthquake in Turkey, there were, um, in Syria, there were a hundred people that were arrested after the earthquake. Like, why, why are people getting arrested after? They were developers. They were builders. And they compromised for money, for gain, for greed. They compromised building practices at the cost of thousands of people's lives. It wasn't because of homosexuality. 
that they cut corners. It was because of greed. Our world is devastated because of pride and greed, lust, selfishness, anger, right? We all need Jesus. That's the point, right? There is only one who saves. His blood covers all sin. Such were some of you, right? I'm banking on being covered by the blood of the lamb, acknowledging he is Lord and he is savior. There's not one perfect person that walks into heaven. There's only one perfect person and that is Jesus. And we're banking on that. We gotta keep that straight. He died for all and he invites everyone to be a disciple of his, following him, being changed by him, committed to the mission of him. And then last thing before I wanna hear from Ben, don't forward this message to your gay family and friends. For real. This message is not for them, this message is for you. You be Jesus to them. That's the message that they need, grace and truth. be said, mostly within dialogue and relationship. This is a very limited place for communication of of these things. And so anyways, huge rabbit trail. Ben, what what would you add? (laughs) Clean it up. (laughs) Um, We actually had this conversation. I said, you need to do this. (laughs) But uh, I I, I really appreciate the things you said, and a couple of things I really want to emphasize, the fact that, that the wrong way to look at Scripture is for us to impose our ideas. You, it's hard to do. We all bring our ideas and thoughts to the Word of God when we read it, but somehow allowing and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what His Word is wanting to say, and using that as, as a critical tool, allowing the Scripture to communicate to it. But one other piece I would, I would add, because it's so prevalent in our culture today, is the idea of identity. Gender identity is so critical. Um, we, people are gaining their identity based upon their attraction, based upon what they like or what they don't like rather than based upon who Christ is. As Christians, our identity needs to be seeking out who Christ is and becoming more like Christ. Just like Pat said, God is not interested in forming us all into be heterosexuals. In fact, in heaven, we're told there will be no giving and taking in marriage. There will no longer be that marriage relation, that romantic relationship, that sexual relationship in in heaven. It's gonna come to an end. No longer necessary, no more procreation of any sort going on. So you have to decide what your identity is going to be based upon. Is it going to be based upon things that are temporal, things that can shift and change like what you feel or what you think and and, uh, what you're attracted to? Or is it going to be based upon something that is lasting and eternal, Jesus Christ? I encourage you to, to speak to that and to think in those terms, who am I in Christ Not what color I like today defines who I am. So that being said, I I appreciate what you've said, Pat. Um, It's hard, and I appreciate the courage. A little uh, game plan connection here. We've went really long, so we're going to have to shorten this up. I know. I've been watching watching the clock and realize I got about one one minute to get through this. And and, uh, so... You've already seen the first point, Saul's jealousy and David's fame continue to grow. 
we try and pare this down very, very quickly. First of all, Saul's heart is not right for a long time. He has consistently been disobeying God. And so his heart is not even looking to where God is moving. Saul is focused on his own agenda, being the king of Israel and being the savior of Israel. And we know there's only one savior. Now you have that contrasted with two other models for us to follow. So Saul's one model. The other model, I believe, is David. David doesn't say much in this whole account other than two statements where he's invited to be King Saul's son-in-law. And he says, that's a great matter. I'm not worthy of it. I shouldn't do it. Those are the only things he says. Other than that, it's just his actions being narrated and his success It's almost as if if you were in a play, there's a term called two-dimensional characters, three-dimensional characters, and one-dimensional characters. One-dimensional characters are people that are just just kind of in the background people. Two-dimensional characters are people that interact a little bit, but they really don't develop their their character any. And three-dimensional characters are people you develop their whole character and they're a significant part of the whole play. Well, it's almost as if David is a two-dimensional character in this whole account, yet David is the focus through this whole account in what God is doing. And David just is faithful to do what God gives him to do. That's what you see consistently. He's not looking around. He's not searching. He's doing what God gives him, has put in front of him to do, and he's obedient and faithful to do it with a humble heart. He's not seeking something out for himself. He didn't didn't start campaigning to be the next king of of Israel. God chose him, and he was obedient and just simply accepted the anointing from Samuel. You continue to see this attitude where he just has a humble, integrous heart, wanting to be obedient to God. Then there's a third group here, and Jonathan kind of captures a lot of that in the fact that he's, he sees God, God's working through David. And as I said before, he aligns himself. He joins. He participates because he's got a heart and he's got his eyes trained to see where God is working. Saul stopped training his eyes on God a long time ago. David has his eyes on God. Jonathan has his eyes on God. Those are the three models, and they're all significantly different between, from Saul, who's got his eyes blinded by his own agenda, his own barriers to what he wants to do, and is not even looking for what God wants to do. The question isn't even coming up in his mind. The next point in our scene, too, is Saul opposes God, but David remains faithful. You see this this sense in which Saul's heart continues to be hardened, and he starts opposing, actively seeking to get rid of David, using strategies like his own daughters to try and distract David, putting him in places and sending him on missions that would put David at threat, and then eventually actually going after David, twice in the section, 
that I, that I, I was supposed to cover. <laughs> I just realized I forgot that. <laughs> but where he, you know, Saul grabs his spear and wants to pin David against the wall. He's actually seeking to murder David. There's a, there's a progression here. If we're not open to God's spirit, we're open to the work of an evil spirit. And God, God sent an evil spirit upon, upon uh, Saul as well. In fact, the, the passage there says forceful spirit has the idea in Hebrew of smashing through a door, coming in and taking control. That's what Saul's experiencing. Now, there's some tension there. How does God control demons? I thought he has nothing to do with demons. I think uh, Damien had a great statement last week that I just want to restate. God is the God of everything, everywhere, all the time. There are things about God that we do not understand. There's things about our world we don't understand. You don't need to understand God to trust God. It's going to be up there, I think, is it? That statement? Because this is, I think this is really important for you. I'm going to pause for a minute. You don't need to understand God to trust God. Does your six-year-old child need to understand why you tell him he can't do certain things or she can't do certain things for that child to trust you and obey you? No. There are things about God we don't understand, but one of the things I really take hope in is the fact that God's in control of Satan. There are, there are a couple passages. There's one in Job chapter 1 where, where Satan himself is before God. And, and, and uh, jo, jo, uh, uh, Satan is boasting or, or saying, look, at, you know, if you didn't bless Job, he wouldn't follow you. And God gives Satan permission. You can do anything, but you can't lay a finger on Job, on my servant. That's God demonstrating authority over Satan. And then you have another passage in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus is on the boat, comes to a place called the uh, Gennesirens, and there's the, a demon, that a, a man filled with a demon that's called Legion. And they bow down, and they, they're fearful of Jesus because the authority Jesus has. And Jesus speaks to them and commands them and has a complete authority. God is in control throughout this. That's one of the things I... I want to emphasize again, throughout this passage, the only times that you see God actively in the passage is when he sends a forceful spirit on, on, on Saul, and then um, when statements are made that God, God's spirit left Saul and was on David, which it said twice. But God is active in this passage throughout it. David has no success apart from God's spirit. No one sees anything but God's spirit. Jonathan sees God's spirit and aligns with David. The officers and the, and the troops see David's, God's spirit on David and aligns with him. The women see God's spirit and they align with it, with him. The daughter, McCall, sees God's spirit on David and aligns herself. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to look for God's spirit and align ourselves with God. 
not expect God to align himself with us. I want to do this, God, and I want you to bless it. No, that's you being in control. God is in control. It's he is sovereign. It is his plan that's being worked out in this passage. It is his plan that is being worked out throughout history. God is sovereign over unrepentant people like Saul. Saul is frustrated at every turn to try and thwart David because God is in control. God is in control of the history of this world. And we need to learn to train our eyes to look for him. You know, uh, Debbie mentioned the, uh, I'm going to try and be brief. I'm still trying to be brief. <laughs> Debbie mentioned the uh, revival going on in Asbury. I'm not sure it's revival. I can't, I've not, not been there, so I'm not the one announcing it as such. But I've been following it thanks to my wife. She, she kind of, uh, you know, sends me information and I read, I read through it. I've been a student of revival for, for many years and and. and be able to identify what genuine revival is because Satan can certainly uh, copy it. And so you have to be aware of that. And I'm not saying one way or the other. But what I, what I have been reading from the, some, some of these accounts has been um, particularly amazing to me. This is from uh, Tom McCall. Uh, and it's just simply his account when he went into Hughes Auditorium in Kentucky there. Uh, Wilmore, Kentucky. I grew up going to revivals and camp meetings. I've seen people shout, run the aisles, and tightrope the backs of pews. I sometimes refer to this sort of thing as swinging from the chandeliers. This isn't what is taking place at Asbury University. When it comes to the manifestation of God's presence, I am no skeptic. Quite the contrary. I am a straight-up believer that across space and time, in the most unpredictable ways, the holiness of God becomes palpable. The enveloping darkness atop Sinai, I, Isaiah's woe is me. I had been seated in the auditorium for less than 10 minutes when I came to, by which I mean to say when I suddenly found myself having conscious thoughts about my surroundings and about what I was experiencing. The best way I know to put this is to say that it was as though in just a few short minutes I had completely zoned out. Two things stood out to me. First, there was a noticeable lack of tension in my body. I was completely relaxed. There was also a complete lack of mental tension or distraction. My mind was at utter peace. And I had only been there for 10 minutes. The second thing I recall thinking is that I could sit here in this chair forever. The desire to linger indefinitely was quite unexpected. I had planned to pop in for a few minutes before returning to work. Suddenly, work was the farthest thing from my mind. I wound up staying for, over, for well over an hour. In the time I was there, I could not get over certain distinct qualities about the atmosphere. The words that came to mind were gentle, sweet, peaceful, serene, tender, still. Some people were singing, others were talking, many were praying, but there was something like a blessed stillness permeating the place. No one was swinging from the chandeliers. In fact, it was right the opposite. What made this so wild was just how unwild the whole thing was. 
I've seen some other information about what's going on in Asbury as well, but there are, there's a map that someone showed me, I don't remember who, it might have been Josh Rogers, where it showed all countries where people have gone to Asbury Seminary to want to be a part of this, to see it, to, be, to experience it, sacrifice things, sold a car in order to pay for the price to get there, all these types of things. So one thing that I am pulling away as I read those things is how thirsty <laughs> how thirsty we are for God. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I know that Jesus is the answer. And he'll always be. We are called to look for the Spirit of God. We are called to align ourselves. First of all, next things, I'm, wrap, I'm wrapping it up and winding it down, is you just simply know God is sovereign even when you don't necessarily see Him. He is active and He is working. Secondly, we need to trust Him. Don't have to understand him. We just need to trust him. Thirdly, we need to learn how to train our eyes. We do this so well when it comes to football, when it comes to, uh, you know, our favorite interest, our, our favorite author, our, you know, whatever it is, we train our eyes, we read the books, we, we look up the news articles, we do whatever we can to find information on things. And, we, and by doing that, we're training our eyes, so our focus upon is on that. Maybe it's your advancement at work that you train your eyes on. What do you need to do in order to get more pay to, to get that position or get that job? Whatever Whatever it is, we train our eyes on that. Start training your eyes on Jesus. And it starts here. And allowing the word of God to permeate our lives and capture our hearts. Sometimes we thirst and we don't know that we thirst. Because we're distracted by everything else that's going on in our lives. There is... I've never experienced the manifest presence of God, but that's what essentially revival can be defined as. Palpable is what that account said. You could feel it. I long for that. I'm thirsty. We need God. We need God to heal heal our lives. We need God to heal our church. We need God to heal our communities. We need God to heal our country. We need God to heal our world. Seek him out. Train your eyes. Trust him. Where is God working now in your life? Because he is. I can say that with confidence without even knowing you and what's going on in your life, but God is working in your life right now. Where is he working and align yourself with that. Set aside whatever agenda you have in place and seek God's agenda. Set aside because he is all we need and all we'll ever need. Give up control. Do what's in front of you. That's where it begins. God's already in control. So move towards him. 
seek his, look for his spirit.